Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Michael Nowak and today I'll be reading part four of cardiology textbook excerpts on the approach to cardiac disease diagnosis, mixed with a few commentaries and explanations. Let's begin. Diagnostic studies. Diagnostic study number one, electrocardiography, also called EKG. EKG is perhaps the least expensive of all the cardiac diagnostic tests providing considerable value for the money. Modern EKG reading computers do an excellent job of measuring the various intervals between waveforms and calculating the heart rate and the left ventricular axis. These programs fall sh considerably short, however, when it comes to diagnosing complex EKG patterns and rhythm disturbances, and the test results must be read by a physician, PA, or NP skilled at EKG interpretation. Analysis of cardiac rhythm is perhaps the EKG's most widely used feature. It is used to clarify the mechanism of an irregular heart rhythm detected on physical examination, or that of an extremely rapid or slow rhythm. The EKG is also used to monitor cardiac rate and rhythm Ambulatory EKG monitoring devices allow assessment of cardiac rate and rhythm on an ambulatory basis. EKG radiotelemetry is often used on hospital wards and between ambulances and emergency departments to assess and monitor rhythm disturbances. There are two types of ambulatory EKG recorders. Continuous recorders that record all heartbeats over 1 to 21 days, and intermittent recorders that can be attached to the patient or implanted subcutaneously for weeks or months and then activated to provide brief recordings of infrequent events. In addition to analysis of cardiac rhythm, ambulatory EKG recordings can be used to detect ST wave transients indicative of myocardial ischemia and certain electrophysiologic parameters of diagnostic and prognostic value. The most common use of ambulatory EKG monitoring is evaluation of symptoms such as syncope, near syncope, or palpitation for which there is no obvious cause, but cardiac rhythm disturbances are suspected. The EKG is an important tool for rapidly assessing metabolic and toxic disorders of the heart. Characteristic changes in the ST-T waves indicate imbalances of potassium and calcium. Drugs such as tricyclic antidepressants have characteristic effects on the QT and QRS intervals at toxic levels. Such observations on the EKG can be life-saving in emergency situations with comatose patients or cardiac arrest victims. Chamber enlargement can be assessed through the characteristic changes of left or right ventricular and atrial enlargement. Occasionally, isolated signs of left atrial enlargement on the EKG may be the only diagnostic clue to mitral stenosis. Evidence of chamber enlargement on the EKG usually signifies an advanced stage of disease with a poorer prognosis than that of patients with the same disease but no discernible enlargement. The EKG is an important tool in managing suspected acute coronary syndromes. In patients with chest pain that is compatible with myocardial ischemia, the characteristic ST-T wave elevations 
that do not resolve with nitroglycerin, parentheses, and are unlikely to be the result of an old infarction, end parentheses, become the basis for thrombolytic therapy or a primary percutaneous intervention. Rapid resolution of the EKG changes of myocardial infarction after reperfusion therapy has prognostic value and identifies patients with reperfused coronary arteries. Evidence of conduction abnormalities may help explain the mechanism of bradyarrhythmias and the likelihood of the need for a pacemaker. Conduction abnormalities may also aid in determining the cause of heart disease. For example, right bundle branch block and left anterior fascicular block are often seen in Chagas cardiomyopathy, and left axis deviation occurs in patients with a premium atrial septal defect. Diagnostic study number two, echocardiography. Another frequently ordered cardiac diagnostic test, echocardiography, is based on the use of ultrasound directed at the heart to create images of cardiac anatomy and display them in real time on a monitor screen. Two-dimensional echocardiography is usually accomplished by placing an ultrasound transducer in various positions on the anterior chest and obtaining cross-sectional images of the heart and great vessels in a variety of standard planes. In general, two-dimensional echocardiography is excellent for detecting any anatomic abnormality of the heart and great vessels. In addition, because the heart is seen in real time, this modality can assess the function of cardiac chambers and valves throughout the cardiac cycle. Transesophageal echocardiography, also called TEE, involves the placement of smaller ultrasound probes on a gastroscopic device for placement in the esophagus behind the heart. It produces much higher resolution images of posterior cardiac structures. TEE has made it possible to detect left atrial thrombi, small mitral valve agitations, and thoracic aortic dissection with a higher degree of accuracy. Recent advances in image processing of multiplanar images have permitted real-time three-dimensional echocardiography which is especially useful in evaluating structural valve pathology and guiding repair or replacement decisions. In addition, three-dimensional images are more accurate at determining chamber volumes. The older analog echocardiographic display referred to as M-mode, motion mode, or time motion mode, is currently used for its high axial and temporal resolution. It is superior to two-dimensional echocardiography for measuring the size of structures in its axial direction, and its 1 to 1,000th second sampling rate allows for the resolution of complex cardiac motion patterns. Its many disadvantages, including poor lateral resolution and the inability to distinguish whole heart motion from the motion of individual cardiac structures, have relegated it to a supporting role. Doppler ultrasound can be combined with two-dimensional imaging to investigate blood flow in the heart and great vessels. It is based on determining the change in frequency, parentheses, caused by the movement of blood in the given structure, end parentheses, of the reflected ultrasound compared with the transmitted ultrasound and converting this difference into flow velocity. 
Color flow Doppler echocardiography is most frequently used. In this technique, frequency shifts in each pixel of a selected area of the two-dimensional image are measured and converted into a color, depending on the direction of flow. The velocity and the presence or absence of turbulence. When these color images are superimposed on the two-dimensional echocardiographic image, a moving color image of blood flow in the heart is created in real time. This is extremely useful for the detection of regurgitant blood flow across cardiac valves and any abnormal communications in the heart. Tissue Doppler imaging is similar to color flow Doppler except that myocardial tissue movement velocity is interrogated. This allows for the quantitation of the rate of tissue contraction and relaxation, which is a measure of myocardial performance that can be applied to systole and diastole. Tissue Doppler images can be used to evaluate myocardial strain regionally or globally. Reduced left ventricular systolic strain is an early sign of myocardial weakness that can occur before other measures, such as left ventricular ejection fraction, are reduced. Global left ventricular strain is currently being used to detect early drug toxicity to the heart. Because color flow imaging cannot resolve very high velocities, another Doppler mode must be used to quantitate the exact velocity and estimate the pressure gradient of the flow when high velocities are suspected. Continuous wave Doppler, which almost continuously sends and receives ultrasound along a beam that can be aligned through the heart, is extremely accurate at resolving very high velocities, such as those encountered with valvular aortic stenosis. The disadvantage of this technique is that the source of the high velocity within the beam cannot always be determined and must be assumed based on the anatomy through which the beam passes. When there is ambiguity about the source of the high velocity, pulsed wave Doppler is more useful. This technique is range-gated such that specific areas along the beam, i.e. sample volumes, can be investigated. One or more sample volumes can be examined and determinations made concerning the exact location of areas of high velocity flow. Two-dimensional echocardiographic imaging of dynamic left ventricular cross-sectional anatomy and the superimposition of a Doppler color flow map provide more information than the traditional left ventricular cine angiogram can. Ventricular wall motion can be interrogated in multiple planes and left ventricular wall thickening during systole, an important measure of myocardial viability, can be assessed. In addition to demonstrating segmental wall motion abnormalities, echocardiography can estimate left ventricular volumes and ejection fraction. In addition, valvular regurgitation can be assessed at all four valves with the accuracy of the estimated severity equivalent to contrast angiography. Doppler echocardiography has now largely replaced cardiac catheterization for deriving hemodynamics to estimate the severity of valve stenosis. Recorded Doppler velocities across a valve can be converted to pressure gradients by use of the simplified 
Bernoulli equation, parentheses, pressure gradient equals four times the velocity squared, end parentheses. Cardiac output can be measured by Doppler from the velocity recorded at cardiac anatomic sites of known size visualized on the two-dimensional echocardiographic image. Cardiac output and pressure gradient data can be used to calculate the stenotic valve area with remarkable accuracy. A complete echocardiographic examination including two-dimensional and M-mode anatomic and functional visualization and color pulsed and continuous Doppler examination of blood flow provides a considerable amount of information about cardiac structure and function. A full discussion of the usefulness of this technique is beyond the scope of this chapter, but individual uses of echocardiography will be discussed in later chapters. Unfortunately, echocardiography is not without its technical difficulties and pitfalls. Like any non-invasive technique, it is not 100% accurate. Furthermore, it is impossible to obtain high-quality images or Doppler signals in as many as 5% of patients, especially those with emphysema, chest wall deformities, and obesity. Although TEE has made the examination of such patients easier, it does not solve all the problems of echocardiography. Despite these limitations, the technique is so powerful that it has moved out of the non-invasive laboratory and is now frequently being used in the operating room, the clinic, the emergency department, and even the cardiac catheterization laboratory. To help guide procedures without the use of fluoroscopy, new handheld echocardiographic machines may soon rival the cardiac physical examination at the bedside. Some of these small new devices use the physician, PA, or NP's smartphone to produce the echocardiographic images. Diagnostic study number three, nuclear cardiac imaging. Nuclear cardiac imaging involves the injection of tracer amounts of radioactive elements attached to larger molecules or to the patient's own blood cells. The tracer labeled blood is concentrated in certain areas of the heart and a gamma ray detection camera is used to collect the radioactive emissions and form an image of the deployment of the tracer in the particular area. The single crystal gamma camera produces planar images of the heart depending on the relationship of the camera to the body. Multiple head gamma cameras which rotate around the patient can produce single photon emission computed tomography, also called SPECT, S-P-E-C-T, images, displaying the cardiac anatomy in slices, each about one centimeter thick. Positron emission tomography scanning requires special isotopes and imaging equipment, but positrons are less susceptible to attenuation by the chest wall and can detect cellular metabolism as well as perfusion. The presence of metabolism in a malfunctioning or poorly perfused wall suggests myocardial viability. Nuclear cardiac imaging, letter A, myocardial perfusion imaging. The most common tracers used for imaging regional myocardial blood flow distribution are thallium-201 
and technetium 99 m based agents, such as Sestimibi. Thallium-201, a potassium analog that is efficiently extracted from the bloodstream by viable myocardial cells, is concentrated in the myocardium in areas of adequate blood flow and living myocardial cells. Thallium perfusion images show defects, parentheses, a lower tracer concentration, end parentheses, in areas where blood flow is relatively reduced and in areas of damaged myocardial cells. If the damage is from frank necrosis or scar tissue formation, very little thallium will be taken up. Ischemic cells may take up thallium more slowly or incompletely, producing relative deficits in the image. Myocardial perfusion problems are separated from non-viable myocardium by the fact that thallium eventually washes out of the myocardial cells and back into the circulation. If a defect detected on initial thallium imaging disappears over a period of 3 to 24 hours, the area is presumably viable. A persistent defect suggests a myocardial scar. In addition to detecting viable myocardium and assessing the extent of new and old myocardial infarctions, thallium-201 imaging can also be used to detect myocardial ischemia during stress testing. Parentheses, see later section on stress testing, end parentheses. As well as marked enlargement of the heart or dysfunction. The major problem with thallium imaging is photon attenuation because of chest wall structures, which can give an artificially appearance of defects in the myocardium. The technetium 99M based agents take advantage of the shorter half-life of technetium, parentheses, six hours. The half-life of thallium-201 is 73 hours, end parentheses. This allows for use of a larger dose, which results in higher energy emissions and higher quality images. Technetium 99M's higher energy emissions scattered less and are attenuated less by chest wall structures, reducing the number of artifacts. Because Sestamibi undergoes considerably less washout after the initial myocardial uptake than thallium does, the evaluation of perfusion versus tissue damage requires two separate injections. The addition to detecting perfusion deficits, myocardial imaging with the SPECT system allows for a three-dimensional reconstruction of the heart, which can be displayed in any projection on a monitor screen. Such images can be formed at intervals during the cardiac cycle to create an image of the beating heart, which can be used to detect wall motion abnormalities and derive left ventricular volumes and ejection fraction. Matching wall motion abnormalities with perfusion deficits provides additional confirmation that the perfusion defects visualized are true and not artifacts of photon attenuation. Also, extensive perfusion defects and wall motion abnormalities should be accompanied by decreases in ejection fraction. Nuclear cardiac imaging, letter B, positron emission tomography. Positron emission tomography, also called PET, is a technique using tracers that simultaneously emit two 
high-energy photons. A circular array of detectors around the patient can detect these simultaneous events and accurately identify their origin in the heart. This results in improved spatial resolution compared with SPECT. It also allows for correction of tissue photon attenuation, resulting in the ability to accurately quantify radioactivity in the heart. PET can be used to assess myocardial perfusion and myocardial metabolic activity separately by using different tracers coupled to different molecules. Most of the tracers developed for clinical use require a cyclotron for the generation. The cyclotron must be in close proximity to the PET imager because of the short half-life of the agents. Agents in clinical use include oxygen-15, which has a half-life of 2 minutes, nitrogen-13, which has a half-life of 10 minutes, carbon-11, which has a half-life of 20 minutes, and fluorine-18, which has a half-life of 110 minutes. These tracers can be coupled to many physiologically active molecules for assessing various functions of the myocardium. Besides rubidium-18, with a half-life of 75 seconds, does not require a cyclotron and can be generated on site. It is frequently used with PET scanning, especially for perfusion images. Ammonia containing nitrogen-13 and water containing oxygen-15 are also used as perfusion agents. Carbon-11-labeled fatty acids and F-fluorodeoxyglucose are common metabolic tracers used to assess myocardial viability and acetate containing carbon-11 is often used to assess oxidative metabolism. The main clinical uses of PET scanning involve the evaluation of coronary artery disease. It is used in perfusion studies at rest and during pharmacologic stress, i.e. exercise studies are less feasible. In addition to a qualitative assessment of perfusion defects, PET allows for a calculation of absolute regional myocardial blood flow or blood flow reserve. PET also assesses myocardial viability using the metabolic tracers to detect metabolically active myocardium in areas of reduced perfusion. The presence of viability implies that returning perfusion to these areas would result in improved function of the ischemic myocardium. Although many authorities considered PET scanning the gold standard for determining myocardial viability, it has not been found to be 100% accurate. Thallium reuptake techniques in echocardiographic and magnetic resonance imaging of delayed myocardial enhancement have provided equally valuable for detecting myocardial viability in clinical studies. Nuclear cardiac imaging, letter C. Radionucleotide angiography. Radionucleotide angiography is based on visualizing radioactive tracers in the cavities of the heart over time. 
radionucleotide angiography is usually done with a single gamma camera in a single plane and only one view of the heart is obtained. The most common technique is to record the amount of radioactivity received by the gamma camera over time. Although volume estimates by radionucleotide angiography are not as accurate as those obtained by other methods, the ejection fraction is quite accurate. Wall motion can be assessed in the one plane imaged, but the technique is not as sensitive as other imaging modalities for detecting wall motion abnormalities. Although still used by some to follow ejection fraction serially, it has largely been replaced by echocardiography. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast, part four of cardiology textbook excerpts on the approach to cardiac disease diagnosis. My name is Dr. Michael Nowak, and please check out our other podcast by Certified Medical Educators. Have a wonderful day.